I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. Hey, Samantha, how are you? I'm okay. My my voice is a little shot today. My throat's a little sore. I had two senior citizen tours I had to give at work today, big group tours. So wow. it was a busy, did, busy did day. Did anybody wander off? You know, there's always one person who's going to ask you every question about three points before you're going to actually explain the thing. And uh-huh. so I had that lady, but I'm also able to like wrangle them in, in a funny way. So like when I realized this is what she was doing, we got upstairs to one room and she wandered off the other way. I was like, Hey now get back here. We're going to go there next. And like everybody laughed about it. She's like, I know, I know. And, <laughs> and came over. Um, and then there's always like the one, like, kinder well of course kind um older gentleman who always wants to stand right next to you because you're you're the young historian girl and (laughs) that's my dad that's my dad on these on these senior citizen stores absolutely Um, yes he was like that when he was was my age too so and i'm like that so (laughs) it's probably um it's it's probably uh probably genetic and yeah. no um, it went, they went really well they it was great they're my first group tours that i've had since um since before COVID. um so so they went well i was really happy with them not that you all need a rundown of my employment and my, <laughs> my job but that's that's where i'm at today <laughs> that's great i um i had a dead car battery that Yay. i needed to fix <laughs> in the um needle sharp wind that was uh, blowing across yeah. Michigan today. And um, I've been answering repetitive questions about assignments that are due tomorrow, Yay. So, um, which is my job. <laughs> but nobody nobody, uh, nobody tried to get ahead and go into a different room that I had to clear yeah. out. So I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess things are okay. So today we're going to be looking at some ghosts. And Ooh. I think, um, tell me if I'm wrong, Sam, this is the first actual sort of let's look at some hauntings, sort of like haunted house type. Yeah, stuff. I think so. Like here's a here's a building history. Here are the claims that are inside of it. Now let's let's see if we can verify some of this stuff. I think it is the first one we've done. Yeah, or see, see, and see where the history matches up to mm-hmm. what everybody says. Yes, and that's local legend on, <laughs> on haunted fill in the blank city. Dot com, yes. um, things like that. So we're going to be looking at St. Paul, Minnesota. Have you ever been to the Twin Cities, Sam? I have not. Neither have I. I I've been to Duluth. That's um, in Minnesota. My friend Heather is a big fan. Of the Twin Cities? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to go there. It's They mm-hmm. sound great. There's all sorts of wonderful things that come from there. My favorite thing ever, Mystery Science Theater 3000, is a Twin Cities oh. creation. And they're all... They're all like Minnesota people, and they're the mm-hmm. most Midwestern people ever, and it's, it's wonderful. St. <laughs> Paul has an interesting history, and we're going to be exploring some of that history today along with, um, along with some ghosts. So the hauntings that we're going to be looking at specifically, or I guess these places, have a strong connection to the Prohibition era. And so for historical context, we thought we'd explain a little bit about Prohibition, in case any of you out there don't don't know Prohibition. But we are also going to look a little bit more broadly about um, uh, organized crime and maybe some misconceptions that we might have about that because it's all going to tie into the ghost stories later. Absolutely. So I, I need to warn everybody that the 1920s are one of my favorite things and I am going to really restrain myself. I'm not even going to mention modernism apart from explaining that I'm not going to. Yeah, it's not relevant. About... No, it's not. <laughs> Isn't it, Sam? <laughs> really? Um so the phrase the roaring 20s conjures up a lot of stereotypical images, flapper dresses, jazz, baseball, movie stars, cars that look like works of art. But prohibition is the one thing that sticks out for many people sort of underlying this. In 1919, the 18th Amendment was ratified by 46 out of the 48 states. It wasn't close or anything. <laughs> and in, um, in 1920, the Volstead Act was passed, which enabled was the enabling legislation for the 18th Amendment, which prohibited their production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages. And this ban would last until 1933, when the 21st Amendment would be ratified, which canceled out the 18th Amendment and also gave the name to a, a chain of liquor stores in Indianapolis, 21st Amendment Liquors, oh, which I always thought was the that. best yeah. the best name for <laughs> a, a liquor store. 
But prohibition doesn't come out of nowhere. Sometimes if, if you just sort of read about it, you think, oh, why on earth in 1919 they did, did they decide to ban alcohol? Anti-alcohol activists had been calling for increased restrictions or outright bans on alcoholic beverages for decades, with the temperance movement being one of the leading social reform movements of the 19th century. During the progressive era of the early 20th century, the movement was one of several that gained momentum by being presented as a public health measure. So sort of along the same lines as we need better sewage and sanitation systems, and we need to get the rat hair out of our yogurt and, and all of these <laughs> other things. Um, we also need to get rid of whiskey. That, that, that's just, you know, it's just a common sense, a common sense thing. Leadership came from organizations like the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and support had been building during the 1910s, uh, state legislatures replacing more and more restrictions and regulations on alcohol production and sales. And one thing that benefited anti-alcohol activists was, in a way, World War I. Much of the beverage industry opposition, sort of the leadership of this, was led by breweries run by very German-sounding people. So um, at the head of the, I forget what the name of the organization was, but it was basically the the big trade organization for the alcoholic beverage industry. It was dominated by breweries. So the leadership of people opposed to temperance were very sort of German. And so there was some rhetoric around 1917, 1918 about, hey, prohibition is also kind of patriotic during wartime. So, which is something I, I read about when I was doing research for this that I hadn't really heard of before, but it makes um, it makes as much sense as any of the other sort of rampant nationalism that was going on at the time. Additionally, um, temperance had been on the minds of many um, throughout, especially the latter half of the 19th century, as, you know, sort of an anti-immigration thing. You know, there were lots of connections between alcoholism and and just over-drinking and things, and um, the new immigrants that were coming in, especially the Irish. uh, and, And they also tied it, in some cases, like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, to um to women's rights as well. Mm-hmm. So as women, we can care for folks and we don't want our husbands out drinking and so, you know, give us the vote and you know, we'll right. we'll get rid of alcohol as well. So there were so many reasons that had been building for half a century or more to 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 ban alcohol. So I'd I'd put it at a century. I think yeah, you can take yeah. it back to, yeah. to the eighteen twenties and yeah. and say that especially the the, the sort Oh with of, Jackson and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the effect of the effect of alcohol alcoholism ruined families. It destroyed mm-hmm. families. And, and that's mm-hmm. it sounds like a a sort of emotional argument, but no, it, it's given given the amount of legal and economic power women had in mm-hmm. the early to mid nineteenth century if the man of the house was a ruinous drunkard, that's that's bad for everybody. Yep. A lot of times I think we connect prohibition with organized crime. And um, the popular narrative goes that once prohibition came into effect, organized crime appeared to take advantage of the illegal trade in booze. But we've all watched The Untouchables, right? <laughs> That's seared into my eye. I loved The Untouchables. Oh, so good. (laughs) Um, But truly, organized crime was already around, engaging in prostitution, gambling, and theft. Alcohol simply provided yet another investment for their portfolio, if you will. Opponents of prohibition often touted a vast increase in violent crime due to black market alcohol distribution and sales. But modern historians, such as Kenneth D. Rose, argues that the notion of the prohibition-induced crime wave, despite its popularity during the 1920s, cannot be substantiated with any accuracy because of the inadequacy of records kept by local police departments. Mm -hmm. So organized crime was around. We don't know that it got bigger. It just took advantage right. of this thing that I think in today's society, we're like, oh, that's so crazy. They banned alcohol. <laughs> and so we we tie all these other things into it. Regardless of what the statistics might say, there was a public image of organized crime as being predominant during the decade. Criminal figures and organizations were, while not quite celebrities, certainly well-known. John Dillinger, Al Capone, and others were never far from the headlines. The brutal glamour of organized crime during the 1920s has been a mainstay of pop culture in the United States ever since. And organized crime would obviously continue to be active in the United States and remain a fixture in television and film. 
So while we're going to be talking about some stories outside of what could strictly be called the Prohibition era, the era of Prohibition looms large over much of what we are going to discuss in terms of the overall context. Yeah, so we're going to be going a little past it in a couple of cases, a little before it in a couple of cases, but it's this is this is a very prohibitiony sort of <laughs> a sort of sort of theme. If we would have limited it just to prohibition, we would have had to cut some cool stuff. And it wouldn't be a complete picture of these places either. They didn't just no. crop up suddenly in 1920. <laughs> and and one of the things one of the things we found and this is going to come out I think sort of as a running theme through the episode is that a lot of times there are ghost cases and stories that are sort of connected by sales pitches and promotional <laughs> things and and advertising to prohibition and organized crime because people like gangsters. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a way to hook these things these things together. Did you see the movie? I forget what it's called. Oh, the Highwaymen? Is that what it's called? It's on Netflix. It is with Kevin Costner again oh, and oh, Woody yeah. Harrelson about them chasing Bonnie and Clyde in the 30s. I have not seen I've heard of it. It's really good. Is it good? Oh, I, I've watched it a couple times. Oh, I'm wow. a Woody Harrelson fan though. So, but I watched it a couple times, but um in it, you know, they really kind of highlight this newfound celebrity that criminals of the time had, how they captured the newspapers, how, you know, I mean, spoiler, Bonnie and Clyde died. Um, and so, you know, how how these young people like were throwing themselves out as, you know, they, they pulled the car through and were mourning the death of these criminals and how Woody Harrelson and Kevin Costner as being sort of these older Texas Rangers, you know, they didn't get it and they were very disturbed by the whole thing. But it definitely ties into this idea of the 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 outlaw celebrity for sure. Yeah, there there's a there's a a, a sort of att- attraction to it, mm-hmm. I, I think. And I think a lot of that I'm not I'm going to stop talking about the 20s. I was I almost <laughs> I know. Well, to, I brought up a new movie like <laughs> I know, but I almost went into my uh my growth of a nationalized mass media uh, mm-hmm. thing. So, that's um, totally part of it, yeah. All all restrained <laughs> myself. So, we're going to be looking at two specific locations in St. Paul, Minnesota that have widely recognized sort of dark histories and some supernatural connections. And the first thing we're going to be looking at are the Wabasha Caves. Adrian Lee a ghost hunter in his book Mysterious Minnesota Digging Up the Ghostly Past at 13 Haunted Sites says of the Wabasha Caves the ghost of a murdered gangster is just one of the numerous dead souls that regularly attend the events and celebrations at the caves uninvited and normally unnoticed if they're unnoticed how do they know they're there thank you <laughs> thank you <laughs> I was like, okay, is she going to pick up on this? Because I'm going to. I'm, I, when I typed that in there, I was like, that doesn't make any sense <laughs> no, at it all. No. Um, no sense at all, but it's fun. So the basic history of the cave, while some of the caves were natural, carved out, out of sandstone by the flow of the Mississippi River, they were greatly enlarged and new caves were being dug beginning in 1849. And if you're in the loop on sandstone, you know, you can you can dig a, dig a cave in that like an afternoon, right? <laughs> so beginning in 1849, these caves start to be dug out. And they were originally dug out uh, to mine for silica used in glass making. Later, beginning in the 1880s, the cool, dark, damp environment of the caves made them ideal for mushroom growing, making this one small area of St. Paul that was dubbed Mushroom Valley one of the leading producers of mushrooms in the United States for a time, with more than 50 separate caves being used for growing fungus. So when I think of caves, I think of... um, I think of dark horror because I'm claustrophobic and I do not like them at all. But I, I remember sort of walking in caves on tours. These caves were huge. So the, the scale of the size, the largest one that was run by the Becker Sand and Mushroom Company. <laughs> so you could do both things in the caves. Yeah. You could, um, I was going to say you could grow sand. Um, you could mine sand and grow mushrooms. So this cave had a mile of passageways and 35 foot high ceilings. And it wasn't just mushrooms. The, the caves were also a very close match for caves in France used for aging Roquefort cheese. So some um, some French people came over from France, France? and um, <laughs> and, uh, and and decided to um, to age some cheese in these caves as well. Yeah. So then during the era of prohibition, however, another profitable enterprise made the caves useful. One of the mushroom growers was a man named Albert. Mouchinot, 
perhaps, uh, <laughs> who, who had um, who had immigrated from France during the 1920s. Mouchinots apparently believed that bootlegging was a better deal than mushroom growing and converted his cave into a restaurant and nightclub called the Wabasha Street Speakeasy. The property changed hands and reopened as the Castle Royal, a legitimate establishment, not a speakeasy, in October of 1933. Now, all of the accounts we found say things like Castle Royal was said to be frequented by known criminals like John Dillinger and Ma Barker, but it's local legend. <laughs> yeah. Said who who says everybody says that everybody knows. <laughs> the caves have also been home to debris that accumulates during heavy storms and floodings. Lots of junk gets swept up in the waters of the raging Mississippi, and the caves have been used to store this detritus. Could this be a source of paranormal activity in the area? Aaron? Well, Adrian Lee believes it is because he suspects that <laughs> some of those items have attached to them negative energies from the poor souls who once owned them. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that theory? Maybe. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a stretch. I don't really know why. It seems reaching. Like you're purposely trying to make the place seem haunted. It does, yes. doesn't it? And why would somebody wanting to sell a book about <laughs> hauntings want to do that? <laughs> no, I get cynical sometimes. <laughs> yeah, there are some ghost stories attached to this site, though. Yeah, so I found a recording of a 2018 ghost tour on YouTube. It's they call them their Lost Souls tour, and so now the caves do have different owners from the folks who owned it in 2018, but they are still hosting something called Lost Souls tour. So I'm not sure if it's. You know, I can't I can't speak to whether or not it's going to be exactly the same, um, but I thought I'd give you a rundown of, of what happened inside of this ghost tour because it was something. Now, I, I want to ask, and, and this is a leading question because I know the answer, <laughs> the tour guide, were they dressed in any sort of oh i was going to talk way. about this <laughs> I, was, I was hoping but i, I wanted to sort of give you a, an entry there so the tour guide for this specific ghost tour was dressed as a french maid with a noose around her neck for some reason and i also saw there were several things you know i'm assuming filmed around halloween time right where the local right. news station visits the the creepy place in town or whatever they went in to meet you know, their their sort of tour guide to tell them a couple ghost stories. And this one was dressed as some kind of creepy nurse, and she introduced herself as Nurse, nurse Hatchet. So Nurse Ratchet's less popular right. cousin. <laughs> All right, but on to this tour then. So the guide claimed that there were upwards of 30 ghosts in the caves. Um, in the caves themselves, some areas that they took them to on the tours were finished, while others were were unfinished. They look very cavey, <laughs> if you will. And and between a couple of the videos that I watched, they claimed that the bar was the most active area. Um, there is still a bar there. They host wedding receptions and different parties and all kinds of things down there. You can rent the space. And so in this bar area, it's apparently super haunted. And there are reports of gangster ghosts all around, um, but particularly two that like to sit at the end of the bar. In a news report that I saw from the location, the guide told the reporters that a bartender was working alone and had been drinking a glass of wine. She then turned around and when she turned back to her glass, it was it was filled back up. So a, a ghost sounds, helping her drink. Sounds legit. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of the most interesting stories revolve around the fireplace room, as as the guide called it. And apparently in this room, three gangsters were gunned down, and you can still see the bullet holes around the fireplace. In all of the lore that we've seen about this location, they all say that the bodies are probably buried in the soft limestone under your feet in this space. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the guide also shared the story of a young boy who was in the caves for a wedding um, in this bar area. Um, he was the ring bearer. And the boy himself mentioned how much he liked talking to the old gangsters. And now at, during these events, it does seem like they hire actors to come in and portray, you know, pop, a John Dillinger ghost, uh, uh, you know, whoever other right. <laughs> 
<laughs> other gangster ghost. So there was somebody there um, doing that. And they would kind of lead little groups out into into the caves to like see some of the spaces or whatever. Probably to detract from people wandering on their own, I would think. Yeah. Um, but the child was adamant that there were multiple gangsters all around um and during this tour they stop a couple of times and at different places and they show like a slideshow of some photographs that were taken in the space and they have a picture that was um submitted by like the boy's parents or something of the boy and there are two foggy spots around Ooh. <laughs> foggy Ooh. spots there were many pictures of orbs oh, and orbs. that's <laughs> Yeah, that's something, isn't it? <laughs> and the guide said something like, I can't remember. I should have I should have written this down. But she said something like, now, of course. Oh, and she had a terrible fake accent. I don't know what that was about. <laughs> but she said something like, of course, uh, people just say that the caves are dusty and you can see the dust. And that's all these are. But look at some of them are bright. And I don't know. It was foolish. Yeah, yes, and I just stopped listening. <laughs> how dust works with flash photography. Oh. Um, there's also some odd story about an archangel and i don't know if this was explained in some part of a tour of the tour that like wasn't illicitly recorded by this tour participant i'm assuming (laughs) but they said that uh, there was a tour many years ago and the chandelier fell and glass like you know sprayed all over but it was amazing that nobody was hurt so maybe it was the archangel who was protecting everybody why an archangel i don't know could, could i could, don't know could any random cherubim or seraphim not done this <laughs> it took michael but, uh, you don't yeah right right you don't need you don't need the guy who like will defeat <laughs> lucifer at the last right. trump to be doing this i mean uh, my, my, my angelology hackles are raised by this i've watched enough supernaturals i, I know what i'm talking about <laughs> Then finally, there was another story involving a guide who believed she was visited by her recently deceased grandfather during the tour. So clearly, you do not have to have died in the cave in order to to be there. Just, you know, maybe it's somehow a place where the veil is more thin. I don't know. But all these stories, frankly, in my opinion, as I was watching it, I was like, this could be an amazing historical tour. I could I could create an interpretive plan that would knock visitor socks off, but this is the lamest ghost tour I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it really does sound like it. And I, I, I've got to say that in all the, the sort of articles and, and books I looked through when we were working on this, there are uh, you know one of the story the story about the young boy who who sees the mm-hmm. the gangster ghost at the wedding that mm-hmm. one is in yeah that one's a, a common one and as we're going to see the the sort of gunned down gangster yep. story is but i but that didn't story see- didn't even have ghosts attached to it like in the tour it was just talking about what happened there unless again we didn't you know all wasn't recorded i don't know i think this is I mean, and and it, it's under new management now, so we're not casting aspersions yes. on, on any on any um, prominent business in, in, in <laughs> glorious St. Paul, Minnesota. I get the feeling this was a lousy tour, um, in, in some ways, because there's a bit more to the murdered gangster story than the Lost Souls tour gives us. Now, according to local legend, <laughs> related in a number of books about Twin Cities area hauntings, the gangsters were playing cards when a man with a case came in and asked everyone to leave except for the gangsters then himself he, so he was still there and a waitress the waitress went to the kitchen and then heard gunshots she comes back out three of the gangsters are dead and the fourth who apparently had set the whole thing up to get them in this place left with the gunman so those three gangsters had been betrayed um the waitress calls the police and the police show up they usher her out they investigate the crime scene And then they bring her back and say they see no evidence of a crime. They've cleaned everything up and they accuse her of filing a false police report despite the bullet holes that are in the fireplace being proof of the shooting. Adrian Lee, in his book Mysterious Minnesota, recounted a number of investigations he conducted with his ghost hunting group in this area. And uh, the first edition of the book came out in 2007, which is interesting because that predates 
all of the web articles summarizing these stories that we were able to find. So <laughs> it's a useful source. And I suspect it was kind of the source for a lot of the mm-hmm. October stories that roll around from various Twin Cities news blog sites that that talk about these things. Yeah, very similar to like the Mackinac Island one, right? Where that yeah. one guy had written the book and he put the tour together. And so those are then the stories that just get roll around yep. everything. They, it, it just becomes the the sort of Ur canon. Text. It becomes yeah, canon. It's canon. It's canon. Yeah, it's absolutely canon. Do not try to tell a non-canon ghost story. <laughs> you will be drummed out of the magic circle. So um, Lee detailed an investigation his group did of the room where the gangster murder took place. And there were a number of orbs in the video, but Lee is sensible enough to explain this as water vapor. It's a damp mm-hmm. cave. There's dust. There's, you know, gunk yeah. in the air that's going to show up. Now, multiple spirits were supposedly, supposedly willing to respond to questions. Also interesting is the fact that team member Steve R. saw the Mm. shadow of a figure bending down, quote, perhaps bent over in pain from a gunshot. Maybe it's tying a shoe. I think that is just as sensible an explanation. Mm -hmm. But do we have documentation and lore that there was a shoe that was untied? (laughs) No, but we know the story of the gunned down gangsters. So they're willing to answer questions and they have a, had a ghost device with them called an Ovilus, which is a, a brand of a very expensive um, ghost hunting piece of equipment and controversial from what I've seen. So an Ovilus is a tool that detects changes in temperature and electromagnetic fields. And uh, Lee states in the glossary of his book, it is believed by whom it is believed that an entity with practice can facilitate ambient environmental changes to choose the words it requires to communicate. An Ovilus operates a computer that has a lexicon of words and phonetics programmed into it. So the ghosts are learning how to talk. They, I don't know with, with practice, it says, how do they learn this? Do they learn this from other ghosts? I don't know. It seems like you'd have to have folks in there using it quite a bit in order for yeah. them to figure out how it goes. But. This is so weird. I mean, why not just do the old like ghost box thing of, and they can communicate via electromagnetic waves somehow. Don't try <laughs> to tell me they're learning this anyway. Anyway, <laughs> their ovilus repeated the words murder, dirt, dug in quick succession. Now, this is intriguing, Lee says, because the three dead gangsters are believed to be buried at the back of the caves. Individual evidence of paranormal activity is always strengthened if presented with information from other sources plus technology. The problem is there's no other sources. There's mm-hmm. just there's just are believed. I think one of the things that I sometimes find difficult, well, especially in cases like this where you don't have, well, I guess we haven't checked the facts yet. That's the next section. But when you don't have the documented story or whatever, it just... It seems like it would, it's so easy to, you know, if you see a shadow figure bent over, it's from a gunshot. Or if these words come out of the ovilus or say any, any ghost box or, you, you know, the things that repeat the words and mm-hmm. then it like, or fuzzes, it goes through the, um, the radio stations right, and then right, picks yeah. the words. It's just so easy to read into that what you want. Now, if there was solid documentation that like, this was a thing that had happened in my mind that could be more of a legit story. Um, but otherwise, can't you just say that like weird ghosty things happen? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know because I, I want to believe, um, <laughs> but I don't think that like ghost hunting, I feel like we're skipping to the end of <laughs> our wrap up thoughts or something. Um, but I think there's value in in exploring and looking for spirits and ghosts and things, but I think you have to do it in a historically sound way as well. I agree. Um and and there's 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 there's, there's people out there who do this and and as we're going to see a little later on, Lee does this sort of thing as well a, mm-hmm. a, a bit. And I've got to say the the book is meticulously detailed with regard to the history of these places. Mm-hmm. It's it's very, very good in in that respect. So we do have some 
facts or maybe absences of facts about yeah. this case. Yeah. So let's um, look at um, the the most told one of the most told stories about the Wabasha Street Caves, and that is the um, the four gangsters being murdered in the fireside room of the Castle Royal. So first, we want to point out that in the tour video um, that I watched, it was referred to as the fireplace room because there is a fireplace there. Um, But Aaron noticed um, that it is actually called the fireside room. Um, Mm -hmm. So just there's a there's a little bit of a difference there. And and I was like, uh, your tour sucks because they got the name of the room wrong. And 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 Sam, you you were you had a, a more gracious view. <laughs> well, of- yeah. I mean, first it's just you know it's not a, you mess up when you you're talking and you give a tour. You're a person, you know that that could happen. So I, it I could suppose. just it could just be a flub. Um, I flubbed many times. I'm sure I flubbed today. But also, you know, and even when you're thinking about these tours, and I don't know that, that these folks give as much thought maybe as as what I give into, you know, a tour of our, of our historic landmark house. But, um, you know, you've got to keep in mind what you want the visitor to walk away with. And so is calling a room the fireplace room instead of the fireside room really going to affect the the overall story and the overall facts that you leave with or is it going to bog them down with extra details it is a room with a fireplace so fireplace room yeah and and once you explained it that way to me when we were talking i i was i was like you know that that makes sense you you frame things differently when you're on your feet with a group of people you're moving through a space and you have you're just thinking on your toes you know so it you know like i said flubs happen (laughs) you're you're Um, much much more forgiving than i am about such things because i do the thing (laughs) so rumor has it that the murdered men were buried deep in the caves or as the video mentions in the fireside room itself by either the killers or the police who covered it up So the reason we can't find any corroborating stories is that the evidence of the crime was hidden by corrupt cops. But is that just convenient? Is that a way to (laughs) to create a story that couldn't possibly be proven or debunked or or is that truly realistic it's not entirely implausible uh saint paul did have a reputation as a friendly town for violent criminals for decades in the early 20th century if you paid the right bribes to the right officials usually at a room on the third floor of saint paul's hotel in the words of paul maccabee author of john dillinger slept here you could kill somebody in minneapolis you could rob a bank in des moines you could do whatever crime that you wanted but as soon as you came to saint paul no one could touch you there were also instances maccabee said where the police assisted criminals in committing and covering up their actions so do we know exactly what happened in the fireside or fireplace room to those three gangsters Uh, No, we don't. But given the context of the time, it doesn't sound like it's completely outside of the realm of possibility. Although we do want to be clear that several sources report that police records show nothing of the kind happening there. (laughs) But do you believe the police records of a corrupt... Mm. And, And what did we say at the beginning when talking about prohibition? One of the reasons why we don't have evidence of a huge surge in crime is is poor record keeping by local police departments. Something else interesting is that in books like Haunted St. Paul, you have some of the same stories told on the Lost Souls tour, but some stories, unlike the ones about gangsters being gunned down, don't have any ghosts actually connected to them. And the one about gangsters being gunned down, I've only ever seen ghosts talked about in that one book by the people who did the Mm -hmm. investigation on the ghost tour, summaries and articles. It's just like, here's a gangster thing that happened. There's also ghosts. Maybe it's connected. <laughs> you know, and, and you get that, you get that mm-hmm. a lot. So there's another story in both Haunted St. Paul and Mysterious Minnesota about a young woman who danced with a stranger at the Castle Royal, and it ended up being John Dillinger. That was the whole story. <laughs> that was they stretched that out into three pages. Oh my God. This is like all John Dillinger history. And then maybe a Johnny Depp bio, too, because Johnny Depp played John Dillinger in that movie that was super boring. Oh, he did, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was dull. It was so dull. Yeah. I went with I, my I, sister to the theater to see it, and we were like, oh. But there's no actual connection to paranormal activity involving Dillinger here, apart from Lee saying that this Dillinger mystery can probably never be proved or disproved unless he wanted to pay me a paranormal visit. <laughs> 
Similarly, there's an entire section of the Wabasha Street Caves chapter dedicated to Ma Barker's gang. And the only solid connection to the caves being a thing for the Ma Barker gang is the assertion that the gang could have, could have planned one of their criminal operations there. It's like we need to bulk this thing out with some gangster stories. So <laughs> right. there's sort of a pattern of stories about gangsters being in a place, maybe, probably, <laughs> then ghosts of gangsters decades later without solid connections between them. No names, no identities. There's gangster ghosts. Well, who were the gangsters? How did they die? Did they have a connection to this place at all? And almost as if they're claiming that there were so many gangsters here that some of them must have ended up as ghosts. <laughs> it's very tenuous. I have thoughts, but I'll wait until the end to share them. I'm not going to jump too far ahead. But are we ready for our midway break, do you think? Next time, we're looking at some murders (laughs) in Michigan. Yes. Yes, we are. (laughs) Things are busy, folks. You're lucky you get that much of a preview. (laughs) Some murders in Michigan. Creepy murders. Creepy murders. Murders with yes. creepy letters. Yes. Yes. But not like the Circleville letters. No, not like the Circleville letters. No, we're not doing that again. <laughs> no. You can follow Great Lakes Lore on social media. So we are on Twitter and Instagram as Great Lakes Lore. Uh, and we also have a Facebook page where you can like and follow us there. And on any of these platforms, feel free to comment, talk at us, tweet things about us say nice things be like that <laughs> i was gonna say don't open that up <laughs> you can also support us on patreon if if that's something you're interested in doing you can visit patreon.com slash media it is a patreon for both great lakes lore and aaron's other podcasts the saucer life and there we have bonus content early access to episode um blog posts and we share some field trips sometimes as well so there's lots of fun bonus stuff available at two different tier levels so now it's time for our well, we call it the book segment. <laughs> we don't have a better name for it yet. I don't think we need one. I think book segment no, I think is, that's fine. is fine. I think that's fine. Yeah. Sam, what have you been reading? I am still reading Ghostland by Colin Dickey, and I am sort of cruising through that. Um, I'm also skipping around a little bit because um, each of the chapters um, are kind of independent of each other, looking at these different historic places that are supposedly haunted and it's actually I'm I'm liking it more at this point than I was um last week. Uh he takes a really interesting perspective on on the hauntings and he really tries to find like the source of the hauntings. So kind of some stuff we do. There's an interesting chapter about the Winchester house and um he is able like he shares Sarah Winchester's story um perspectives on um, why it was that she kept building the house and actually tracks down kind of the source of the rumors that, you know, she was doing it to appease the ghosts of all those killed by the Winchester rifle and that she was some mad lunatic woman or whatever. <laughs> um, and so he totally debunks that. And that was that was some really cool history work, I thought. So I enjoyed that. Although he did make this weird comment about there being a Thomas Jefferson ghost at Monticello and... Frankly, if anybody knew that there was a Thomas Jefferson ghost at Monticello, I feel like it would be me. Um, I, without question. Unless, you know, like I, I mentioned on Twitter, I feel like the Thomas Jefferson Foundation probably keeps a very firm grasp <laughs> on, on what docents are allowed to say. So maybe they regularly see TJ roaming the halls, but they're under strict orders not to say anything. That, that's that's the only way that there's that a ghost sense. at Monticello. That makes sense. So I read, um, I, I read it in, oh gosh, two nights. Um, Neil Gaiman's Mor- Norse mythology that that you read mm-hmm. uh, that you read previously, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, it's fun. I'm I'm not a, I'm not a huge mythology guy. Um, I get confused with all the names. I I'll be honest. That's I I get, I I don't know. It, it just doesn't stick. But. I love the stories. I just mm-hmm. can't keep it all straight in my head and find it a little frustrating sometimes. But I really liked this. Um, and what was interesting, or one of the things I found the most interesting, was that I was really surprised at the number of stories I remembered from oh. somewhere. Somewhere, I must, you know, <laughs> as a kid, you know, I think every kid who 
all of us, all of us bookie kids, you know, probably ended up reading mythology books at some time because they I were never read fun. any Norse ones, but I was into the, I was really into the, uh, the Greek gods. So I was all about that. And Egyptian. I liked Egyptian history too. I, I remember, I remember, I, I sort of remember a book when I was a kid that had some Norse mythology and like some Russian stuff and like mm. some just sort of weird northern european central mm-hmm. asia sort of things and there, there are some stories that i remember the the one about the the challenges like thor's challenges or the god's challenges where thor's drinking from the the drinking horn mm. and he he can't finish it off he, it's only down like an inch and he, oh we thought you could drink more than that thor it mm-hmm. turns out no you were actually draining the oceans you're yeah. the most powerful creature you know in the in asgard or midgard or Norn stones or whatever I don't know I get confused with all the terms but um but that one and uh, one I, I remember that one from a kid uh but the one I didn't remember was there was a wedding and I think Loki had a rope wrapped around his junk and it was being tugged on by a donkey something like that <laughs> I, I might not be remembering the details exactly but this is about I, that. I, I think I think that was it I, I think that was mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was that was fun. Um, you wince a little bit, but it's fun. Right? <laughs> so I um I I enjoyed that uh, yeah. greatly, and it was a it was a quick read, and mm-hmm. um yeah yeah fun. I like Neil Gaiman anyway, so mm-hmm. um it was it was good. Yeah, I thought it was. I liked the way that he was able to tell these stories as individual stories but still keep this larger narrative that was also building. Like you could go into the middle of that book, just read a story and great, fine. You got it. Um, But, but yeah, if you read it in order, you know, you, you see how this narrative the sagas of Norse mythology play out and build all the way to Ragnarok. And I, I think he just, he held that storyline subtly, but, held it and i just yeah it's just so good (laughs) it was yeah it was it was i was gonna say it was structurally very sound which sounds like (laughs) the the most damning with faint praise thing ever right what do you think of this book structurally sound (laughs) at a beginning middle and an end you know can't uh can't ask for more than that but no i i agree i I thought it it just it held together it hung Mm -hmm. together as a narrative Mm -hmm. and you could feel it building i mean Mm -hmm. you could once once you get to the point where where Loki has the weird kids. W- yes, Loki's <laughs> that's that's kids. When... <laughs> Loki's kids and um the the brother who kills his brother the 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 blind brother who who yes. kills his brother. Yeah, that, oh, that was closer to the end though. Loki's yeah. weird kids was early. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. that's true. I oh, the and the trolls who made the gifts, right? Yes. Like, or were they tro- no dwarves? The dwarves, dwarves who made the gifts. Um, yeah, that was that was another one where you're like, this will be important later on. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, and it it just you can see all these little things yep. being planted, and then yep. you get then you get to Ragnarok, and and I'm a I'm a Ragnarok fan from way back. Just, just <laughs> the, the the concept of you know the God or Damarung, you know, mm-hmm. sort of this, this this Twilight of the Gods sort of yeah. thing is is a uh, is a fun concept. But I, I'm 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 glad I read it, and thank you so much. For, yeah. um for I'm glad you liked it too. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm glad right. I already owned it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's get back to the show. All right, so now we are going to move on and talk about Schmidt's Brewery, which is also in St. Paul. Um, And Adrian Lee also talks about this in his book. And his little epigraph for this chapter is a bit, a bit clever, a bit more clever than than what he has for for the previous stop. He wrote, "Kidnapping, gangland activities, and industrial accidents mean the only thing now brewing in this disused factory is paranormal activity." Brewing. (laughs) Um, So let's start with the basic history of the building. So what would become the Schmidt Brewery was established in 1855 as the Cave Brewery. So yes, we get caves again. In this case, the cool caves allowed for the proper cold fermentation storage of German-style lagers. It became the Stallman Brewery in 1879, with Jacob Schmidt and his family taking over in 1901, incorporated as the Jacob Schmidt Brewing Company. Schmidt had been in the brewing industry for decades and actually retired from running day-to-day operations a couple years before, leaving his daughter Anna and his son-in-law Adolf Bremer in charge of the company. 
Uh, as for ghost stories, Lee's book details a number of incidents from their investigation of the recently abandoned Schmidt Brewery building. The most compelling is the case of Matthew Kohler. As the investigators move through the brewery, Tim, who seems to be their resident psychic, noticed a man in front of them who would not communicate except to psychically explain that he was a fireman. How would that work? I mean, what what mess? I am a fireman. I am yeah. a fireman. I am a fireman. I, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. So Lee assumed that this meant firefighter. Which I think we mostly would. We hear fireman. We yeah, think, that's what I oh was yeah, it's a it's a gendered term for firefighter. Yep. But later, doing archival research, he found a story from 1904 of Matthew Kohler, whose job at the brewery was to stoke fires and keep the oil lamps lit, a job that had the title of fireman. According to the April 16, 1904 issue of the St. Paul Daily Globe, Kohler was filling an oil lamp and some of the oil spilled on his clothes. He was engulfed in flames. He inhaled them. He was rushed to the hospital, but was burned badly over his entire body. The burns were fatal. He was 37, was married with six kids. Now, Lee argues that this was obviously the being that his team had encountered in the brewery. Tragic death, um, horrifying death, figure saying, fireman. He believes that if he hears a name during an investigation... It's only a matter of time until his research confirms the identity of the person. Now, this seems to me a bit optimistic, but the most interesting part of the story is something that happened several years later in 2016. Lee was investigating a haunting in Iowa when he encountered a familiar entity. Now, he turned on his ghost box and he heard something and and he lays this all out. So, Sam, I think what we're going to (laughs) do... Yes, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. We're going to dramatize this. Okay. Um, I brought this up to her before, folks, and and she was noncommittal about the reenactment. But I wanted to see how I was feeling in the moment. Okay. I'm glad we have a firm (laughs) commitment. We would we would have hired people to do this. But um, so who do you want to be? Do you want to be the ghost hunter or the ghost? Uh, I'll be the ghost hunter. Okay. So you go first then. Yes, I know. <laughs> Who is here? Matthew. Do you prefer Matthew or Matt? Matthew. Did you work here? No. Did you live here? No. Did you come from the surrounding area? No. So where are you from? St. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Have we met before? Yes. Where from? Brewery. Are you Matthew Kohler? Yes. Do you remember talking to me? Yes. Why have you come through? Do you have a message for me? Hello. (laughs) Hello. It's good to talk to you again. I found who you were. I documented your life and passing in the book Mysterious Minnesota. Thank you. (laughs) Do you have anything you wish to tell me? Just thank you. So why is the ghost in Iowa now? Lee doesn't have an explanation, except to say that ghosts are not bound by geography, which I'm very excited about because this (laughs) means that I can attempt to contact Thomas Jefferson right here in mid-Michigan. You you don't even have to go to Monticello. No. You don't have to mess with the foundation? Nope. And their cover-up of the ghost truth of Thomas Jefferson? Yeah. I hope nobody from there listens to this because then they'll never hire me. Oh, no. So there are also a couple of user-submitted ghost stories at the Haunted Places website. The brewery was converted to loft apartments with people moving in around 2013 or 2014, and the accounts at the website are vague, lights turning on and off, shadowy beings, that kind of thing. No one identifying themselves as a brewery fireman or anything like that, though. Numerous articles on Haunted Minneapolis, as well as the Adrian Lee book, mention that Edward G. Bremer, the son of the owners, was kidnapped by the Ma Barker gang in 1934, but this is merely described as an example of sinister or spooky history with no actual ghosts mentioned. So we have another case, just like we do with the with the Wabasha Caves, where they've made the connection to like some kind of cool gangster history like they're attempting to do, but it doesn't actually tie into ghosts. No. And, and you don't even get a, 
there's a lot of negative energy because of kidnapping that might have, you know, yeah. stuck to the vats in the brewery <laughs> or something. I don't you, you don't even get that yeah. attempt at a link. Mm-hmm. And um one thing I'll I'll say it's sort of connected to that that I forgot to put in the outline is that a lot of these haunted Twin City stories talk about Matthew Kohler's death, but they never talk about the fact that he was seen as a ghost. And I think Mm. it's because it's just in this book because it's this guy's investigation. Mm -hmm. So they can't, you know, without sort of seeming to promote somebody's book in Mm -hmm. their article for free, Mm -hmm. they just say a lot of crazy things happen in this brewery. (laughs) So checking the facts. Matthew Kohler's death was reported in contemporary news reports as described in Lee's book. Uh, In fact, even where we might question his ghost hunting techniques or conclusions, we have to acknowledge that Lee has degrees in history and does very thorough research on the locations of these hauntings and the write-ups in the book are accompanied by extensive newspaper excerpts with actual citations of the newspaper, the date, and the page. That's fantastic it's it's miraculous it's (laughs) it's unprecedented in some of these types of books yeah for me the issue if it is an issue is that the entire story hinges on lee's investigation like i said it would be recounted in much less detail and website articles but without you know sort of that firm connection between kohler's death and a ghost but um, it's there aren't decades of tales of the ghost of Matthew Kohler haunting the brewery. You you would think if he Mm -hmm. was haunting this brewery from 1904 until the 1980s when the brewery closed, there would be, oh, the ghost of old man Kohler and his his burned corpse is, you know, up (laughs) on the mezzanine or something. You don't don't get Mm -hmm. that. But much like Tales of Gangsters, Kohler's death was sensational and, and attention grabbing. So let's link that to a ghost story. Of course, it's pretty horrific, like most industrial accidents are. Stories like that tend to have tales grow up around them one way or another. But um, I, I think for me, the, the biggest issue is that that this is, you know, Lee's book is sort of the account of Kohler's, mm-hmm. Kohler's of Kohler haunting the place. And mm-hmm. the showing up in Iowa thing is just super weird. Yeah, super weird. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we wanted to wrap up by considering a few questions that that Aaron and I both kind of came up with and have been thinking about. And I think one of the biggest ones has to deal with the historical context of these ghosts. So why is it that prohibition and gangsters have this hold on us? Um, Why do we want John Dillinger to have slept here? (laughs) Um, why, Why is it so fun to have you know, people dressed up as gangsters at your wedding reception, wedding reception to show you, (laughs) Um, wedding reception to show you, um, to show you the caves where they had the speakeasy. I was going to say, and this this sounds really facetious. I was going to say, I think it's the sharp suits. (laughs) I think the style, the fashion has a big, I mean, the roaring twenties overall are popular because it has a very iconic and glamorous fashion about it. I would 100% yeah. agree with that. Everything from the clothes to to art deco mm-hmm. architecture and it, it it just it's it's got a look which means sort of sort of calling back to one of our pet peeves of of things being referred to as as old-timey. <laughs> yes. 20s ghosts I don't think would ever be referred to as old-timey because it's it's iconically yeah recognizable yeah so nobody's gonna say there's like some guy in a suit no it's like a gangster suit right it's the boxy suit the really wide leg pants the the fedora (laughs) and kind of a sticking it to the man kind of story too like well if the government's gonna outlaw our alcohol then then we're gonna go to the speakeasy where the mobs run in business like we're gonna find our workaround and the the the, the, the mobs supplying the alcohol are, yeah. are are sort of just just almost like robin hood right figures, yes they're you know, I, yes bringing bringing whiskey to the well honestly the wealthy who are going <laughs> to these speakeasies in a lot of cases well and it's all very defined like prohibition has a definite start and an end date there's a definite style that goes along with it and so i think when you're even when you're one of these places that existed long before prohibition and long after prohibition that 1920 to 1933 period is something that people will flock to hear about and you can take this little snapshot in history and sort of woo them with it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's very, 
it's very marketable. It's, it's yeah. a very marketable. I threw a Gatsby party, like yeah. two of them. So I mean, I've done I've done the same thing at work with with the Gatsby parties. I mean, we weren't celebrating organized crime there, but uh, you know, I mean, weren't you really? Maybe who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so spooky history. That phrase comes up a lot. What is spooky, Sam? Do you think get used as a synonym for violent or horrific industrial accident? I think it's because based on pop culture, things that we, I don't know, I don't know if no is the right word, but but things we've been primed to to accept is that where bad things happen, there are ghosts, right? Like right. it is it is the the tortured souls of um of the folks who are you know, killed in the accident, murdered, whatever, that are going to be haunting a place. We hear we I think are are brought that far more frequently than this person loved the house so much they just never wanted to leave. <laughs> <laughs> they died peacefully in bed and hung around giving sage yes. advice to everybody afterward. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think that makes sense. I think we've created sort of a, a narrative and or a sort of origin story for what ghosts and hauntings are that is connected to pain. traumatic stuff. Pain equals yeah. ghost. Because we know so much scientifically about how ghosts work, right? And <laughs> and what causes hauntings, right? So back in the fall, we had an episode where we talked about the concept of dark tourism. So how do you think dark tourism bleeds into or overlaps with with ghost tourism or or, or haunting tours and things like that? Yeah, so I think the the thing to remember and that we mentioned there was the difference between like ghost tourism or haunted tourism and dark tourism. That that there are a lot of folks in the field who look at dark tourism more as, you know, visiting places where bad things happen, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily hunting for ghosts, right? Like you're right. you're not trying to find the paranormal there. So I think so I think that's an important distinction to make. And so sites where bad things happened, you know, where there was an industrial accident or or whatever, um, they can be a site for dark tourism. And, and I think it can be done well. I think it can be done in a way where you learn about the event historically, you put it into context, you learn about the people who were affected, how it changed the area long into the future, you know, what, whatever it could be. But, but when you sort of cheesify it, you're doing a serious disservice to the people who endured whatever that tragedy was, I think. Um, and so, and so ghost tourism also, I think can, can be done in good and bad ways as well. Um, and, and taking a ghost tour of a place I think can do a lot to share history to folks who might not be interested in history or think they're interested in history. But but again, I think you just have to focus on the fact that you're sharing, you're still sharing the history of a place. You're not here as some kind of, you know, haunted attraction, say, that's, you know, built up in October that everybody dresses up for to scare people off. And that's what really turned me off with with the tours of the caves was, you know, the dressed up guides. They totally made it super cheesy. Now I took a haunted pirate tour of Charleston and the guide was, yes, dressed up like a pirate. I, it was fun. That didn't seem as problematic to me because, and you know, there, she wasn't playing a role. She wasn't faking an accent like this woman was. I mean, this, this person had a whole different name and gory, weird backstory. You know, you're just, you're take you're in Charleston, South Carolina. You're taking a tour with a lady dressed up as a pirate, right? As opposed to being in St. Paul with a French maid with a noose around her neck. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Somewhere online, I think it was Twitter, because that's where all the worst stuff is. A lot of times, I, I saw somebody say something along the lines of that: when it comes to historic hauntings, we should avoid debunking, and instead just appreciate the reality that the telling of stories has created. That makes me want to. I I I just. Really, the stories make everything real. It's like, no, they don't. Um, they're, they're they're important. Stories are desperately important, and you know they have a reality of themselves, but it doesn't make other things real. And it just like you know, forget about these historic places. Forget what the facts are. The stories are what matter. I was like, no, I I 
angrily disagree with that. Um, are, are you more sympathetic to that view? Um, a smidge, but only because I think it all depends on what the goals are. Um, if you are attempting to give a history of a place, if you are, um, you know, trying to do something factual, then then that is very important. And personally, I think that, you know, tales of hauntings, when connected with factual history, are are the most powerful. But I also think that if you are trying to look at maybe the legends that have surrounded a place and maybe study why it has attracted legends. So like why has the Wabasha Street Caves been sort of this this focal point of ghostly activity in St. Paul than looking at stories that maybe are not credible, but like why why do people feel compelled to tell them um, what does the story do for the reputation of the place? I, I think I think there's a place for the less than factual stories, um, but it's 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 got to be done right. And it has to be done in a way that from the outset, you know, that you're hearing something that is that is not necessarily true on house tours. We have stories about the house I, I lead tours of that are not. I cannot verify them anywhere. It's sort of like, well, we heard from, you know, right. a, a family yeah. member who told a family member who told a family member. And so for a while, these stories were just shared. Um, but when I started there, I said that, you know, if I can't prove it, I'm going to share it in a way that is clear to people that I've heard, you know, right. <laughs> the local legend says like, sure, that's cheesy, but that's a way to 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 sh- to to say that you don't have the evidence to corroborate the story. And, and so there are ways to qualify the story that you're telling so that people don't take it as fact. I, I agree. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to do it. What, what sort of left me sort of cold with some of this stuff is local legend says or it is believed is the only thing. Right. It, it, they're the only things except for the fireman. I like the fireman story yeah. because you can trace that to an actual person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but even the, the the local legends, are they local legends or are they legends that have emerged since the ghost tourism? Right. So that's what I one of the points I wanted to make is that you know, these I, I chose these two sites when we were planning this episode because they popped up on several lists of haunted places mm-hmm. in Minnesota. And once we started looking at them, Aaron and I were both like, these places are kind of lame. <laughs> like these yeah. are not great haunting stories. Um, there's there's little evidence of thing. And like you can't even find that much about them online o- outside of a few news articles and you know the website for the the venue itself or whatever and it feels very much to me like when ghost tours became popular someone was like oh, oh St. Paul needs some ghost stuff and right. and we've got this prohibition connection and let's yep. look at some old exactly. places that were functioning and and have a prohibition like history and like let's make that the thing and that's how all of this feels very much to me that that's yeah you you said that better than better than i could that that's what i was sort of, yeah um but it reminds me i'm not telling you to go back to the archives and listen but if you haven't you should go listen to our nain rouge episode because yeah. a, a lot of this reminds me of the the nain rouge was seen in the 1967 detroit riots mm-hmm. story which has i mean john tenney is still looking for that article but <laughs> i it, it's like it, the only source for it is people saying that this is a story you'd never get to the the sighting itself right and it was just 1967 so you know they could still be alive but yeah this seems a lot of this seems very thin yes the other thing that really frustrates me particularly with the wabasha street caves is that um it's a place that has an amazing history to it and it's just being pimped out (laughs) yeah 
Like that is totally how it feels. Like I could take that story. I could create an amazing interpretive plan and lead incredible history tours, maybe make a few ghost jokes throughout it if, if, if needed. But like the story is so rich um, on its own. I don't understand why. I don't know. Gangsters are money. You know, so you, you but you could still it, do a history tour of gangsters. You, 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 you could, you could, but I, I think a lot of the gangster stuff has been exaggerated with it. You know, it, well, it's like, sure. You know, that, and so that's you, you got to keep it vague, and then you can't really do a history tour yeah. if all you've got is local legend says that a girl <laughs> danced with John Dillinger here. You know, so that's I think I think I don't know. I money, could still I could. I could craft the hell out of that too. Sam, man. I know you could. I, I have every confidence in your abilities to do that. Um, you know what else I think you could do a really good job with? Hmm. A mushroom tour hmm. of the caves. I, I think I think you could take your experience in, in sort of the horticultural side <laughs> of of these things and you yeah. could explain fungus to people. There you go. Yeah. Fungiculture? Is that what we call it? I think so. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. What do you think? I think so. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Gangster Ghosts of St. Paul was written and produced by Aaron Gullius and Samantha Engel. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore. <laughs> <laughs>